Good morning, everyone. Got the band back together. It's good to see our auditorium so full. Thank you for joining us on Resurrection Sunday. I think you'll be glad you did. I already am glad you did. Um, Let me tell you a a fun story. Tim Hansel, an award-winning, best-selling author, wrote about one Sunday. He went to church on Resurrection Sunday. And his pastor told a story about, I don't know, the power and the wisdom of little children. The story was about this little boy named Johnny. And uh, Johnny had a, a fatal disease and he didn't have much longer to live. And that disease itself kind of prevented him from really understanding any of the assignments that he had when he was in school, just keeping up with that. And during the Easter season, uh, this teacher said that they wanted, he, she wanted everyone to come back next week and bring an Easter egg and put something inside of that egg that, what, that would represent the meaning of Easter to them, whatever that would be. So next week came about, the assignment was turned in and the teacher was nice and opened each one of those eggs and described what was in it and gave great feedback to each one of those children. And um, I mean, one of the eggs <laughs> was empty and just assumed it was Johnny and he didn't comprehend the assignment. And so she was moving on to the next subject matter. And Johnny's hand went up and said, well, teacher, you, haven't, you didn't tell anybody about mine. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, Johnny, I thought, you, I thought you just didn't understand because there was nothing in the egg. And Johnny said, that's the point. There's nothing in, the egg is empty, empty egg, empty tomb. That's the meaning of Jesus and the resurrection. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Within six weeks, Johnny passed and inside his casket was 27 empty Easter eggs. His class learned the meaning of Easter that day. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And Easter isn't just about hope, it's about a certain hope. It's not like a sentimental hope that we aspire to, but it is actually a hope in a promise given by someone that is trustworthy in their promise giving. And then here's the part that I want us to see today, validated over and over again, so that we can enjoy the certainty of that promise, the certainty of that hope. And there's no better time for hope than right now. In a recent health survey of the entire country, uh, it was revealed that the, the life expectancy has actually decreased three years in a row for the first time in about 100 years. And it's not because, here's the point, it's not because of cancer or heart disease. Those uh, diseases have actually gone down in their fatality rate, but rather what they're calling diseases of despair. They have to name them. And most, in summary, it's just uh, some kind of chemical abuse, uh, whether it's you know, alcohol or opioids or, or suicide itself. And the, the studies have shown that in the last 20 years, these, what they're calling deaths of despair, have tripled. In other words, we and our children are living in lives that don't have hope. The marriage rates and the, the child birth rates have gone down significantly because, as sociologists would have concluded, that people are living without hope. And so why bother? Why get involved? And then Resurrection Sunday comes in and says, oh, there's plenty to hope about. There's a con- there's, uh, Resurrection Sunday is this attack on the d- diseases of despair. There's no room for despair. And here's why. The certainty of hope 
is because Resurrection Sunday is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It is not an appeal to pragmatism. It's not an appeal to sentimentalism. In the history of the church, when followers of Christ were hiding with their families in caves, when they were being generous with their resources, when they were giving forgiveness in ways that were expensive, when they were standing on a pile of wood waiting to be martyred, no one said pragmatically, how's that working? Or sentimentally, do you feel, do you feel in the buzz? Are you, you feeling the peace of God in that moment? No? Just fear? Yeah, probably. And here's the devoted followers of Christ have followed Christ not for sentimental reasons, not for pragmatic purposes, because, but rather on a single, you know, verifiable historical event. That's what keeps Christians going, and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you look at it, if you just have a passing glance at the history, whether it's in the Bible or outside of the Bible, on the history and the proofs of the resurrection, you would come to the conclusion that God is trying to make a point in this resurrection. He's trying to make something very clear, and it's not just that Jesus rose from the dead. As the author of history, if he was writing this as some ultimate uh, suspense kind of mystery, I, I just want you to know when you look at the evidence, there's too many clues. <laughs> there's too much evidence. It's, it's like there's, it's an open and shut case. There's no mystery to the mystery of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you see that, you, you have to t- back up one more step and say, but why would God do it that way? Why the overwhelming evidence, just the nature of Jesus' death and the publicity of it, the, the, the placing of him in that particular tomb, the, I don't know, the, the fact that it was sealed with a Roman guard, and then Jesus presenting himself to so many different audiences over about a 40-day period of time. Why? Here's why. Because it is the nature of God to know how frail our human souls are, that we desperately need not a hope, but a certain hope. He wants us to be able to go back to something that that we can appeal to our reason when our emotions are volatile, because there are significant consequences for being a true follower of Jesus Christ. It's life and death. Sometimes it has to do with prosperity or poverty. It's certainly heaven and hell. And so God doesn't want us to be hoping in hope. He wants us to be hoping in something certain. And so the kindness of God, the mercy of God, looking at someone like me, O ye of little faith, says it's not about how much faith you have, it's what you have your faith in. And what you're going to have your faith in is going to be (laughs) evidence spread wild, (laughs) like wild flowers. They'll be everywhere all the time. Today, we're going to look at the certainty of our hope that's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most influential words ever written in human language are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter is dedicated to the resurrection of Christ and its logical consequences. It starts like this. Now, my brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved. 
If you hold firmly to the, the word that I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The certain hope that we have is an appeal to this historical event that Jesus Christ lived like no one else had lived. He taught in ways that no one else taught. People could not figure him out. They couldn't put him in a box to keep him in. They didn't understand him in many ways. He never wrote a single page of his own thoughts and more has been written about Jesus and his teaching than any other human that has ever existed. And the most confounding part of his life is that he went into death willingly without struggle and people didn't understand that. And the, and the Jesus movement, the moment of his death, his crucifixion, it is finished. The Jesus movement was finished utterly, completely and totally done. And then three days later, something happened that resurrected the Jesus movement. And the disciples, they would say what resurrected the Jesus movement was the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. That changed everything. It changed the world. <laughs> like that cross radically changed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the, it's the Roman symbol of humiliation and powerlessness and failure. And now it is the greatest symbol of hope that adorns more headstones than any other symbol all over the world. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look, look at Tim Keller. He's a pastor uh, in New York. He says, when people tell me that they once were believing Christians, uh, but now they rejected it all, I often ask them after listening to them for quite some time, why they originally believed that Jesus rose from the dead and how now they've become to decide that he did not raise from the dead. And when I ask them that question, they usually say, that's a very good question. Here, I wanna, when I look at today, I wanna look at four responses for uh, rejecting the resurrection. And I want to look at those purposefully, not just historically and factually that the resurrection happened, but, but more importantly, like maybe what was behind God's method of doing it in such a manner? What is he trying to show us in the way that he wrote and scripted this resurrection story? The first objection to the resurrection is what's called, he's been going on for 2,000 years, is called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is the belief that Jesus didn't actually die at the crucifixion, but rather swooned, or uh, he was concussed, he, pa he fainted, he went into a coma. And then when he was in the cave and it was cool and it was being left alone for these two and a half, three days, he was resuscitated and, and got better and then escaped. That's the theory. Here's the problems. There's obvious problems here. One is that, that the fact that he didn't die. The, the Roman soldiers that were in, in charge of his execution, they're professional killers. It's what they do for a living. They're quite good at it. Uh, the cake boss knows the difference between, I don't know, like buttercream and fondant, right? Roman soldiers know the difference between dead and alive. 
They had to be certain, and that's why even in the crucifixion story, when things were taking too long, they would break the legs of the victims and then they would suffocate, or they would spear them in the lungs to see if they had, in fact, suffocated or, or drowned. That's kind of the way you die. And they had done that with Christ. He was graveyard dead. That's what these men do, and they had done that. But let's just assume that he just was in a passed out coma situation. He had been beaten for hours. He was required to carry the cross to that Golgotha until he couldn't. <laughs> then he was pierced both hands and his feet and then hung on that cross for hours. Then he was stabbed in the ribs, all signs of death. <laughs> There's more. Then in the burial description in, in, the, in, in John's uh, gospel, it says that he was wrapped in about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. It kind of made a cocoon for him, laid him to rest. He laid there Friday and all day Saturday, and then Sunday he just like sits up and then <laughs> somehow gets the wrappings off. There's more. Wait, then he has to get out. Now, on, on this tomb, there's a stone that is rolled from downhill to uphill into a socket. It's like a disc, a manhole cover. And he would have to have pushed that up the hill because that's the evidence shows that the, it went back up the hill. And pushing this disc up the hill would be like you or me rolling a Suburban over on its roof uphill. After doing that, he defeats the Roman guards. <laughs> this story gets, there's still more to the story. Then he shows up after having done that to his disciples and he appeared to many people and he presents himself as all better. And he's going to convince them that this is the resurrected body. I would, my plan today was to show you before and after photos of UFC or MMA fighters, even just showing you the winners. And it was graphic and I thought I'd get in trouble because the kids were here and, and so it's just real. I've got a paper cut from four days ago that still has a scar. And Jesus is going to show up and say, this is how good it's going to get, people. I don't think that's going to happen. I just don't think that's a legitimate expression of what happened. That was not a resurrected death. If, if there is no, re here's the bigger point. If there is no resurrection, there's no certain hope. And when I talk about a certain hope, I'm talking about a certain hope of our forgiveness. It's directly tied to it. This is Paul speaking, same chapter. Verse 17 says, and if Christ has not been raised, our, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And, and, and then those who that have died in Christ, they're lost. And, and if, if only for this life that we have hope in Christ, then we're of all people to be pitied. So if there's no resurrection, there's no forgiveness, can you see no wonder God in orchestrating, his, using his sovereignty, goes through all of these extravagant expressions of details into his death. Uh, it's not a pun, but there's overkill in this overkill. And, and it, he could have just tripped down some stairs to die, but no, God portrays him in front of everyone having this severe beating and punishment and public display. And why? Because God is demonstrating the cost of our sins against the holiness of God, and he wants us to be certain that they're paid for. 
God is showing us in this kind of the death so that we will have a certain hope for our forgiveness. Look how it's tied together in Colossians. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave, he forgave us of all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood up against us and condemned us. He had taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. So spiritually speaking, Jesus' hands were not empty when he died. They were full of these scripts of accusations and proofs against our moral crimes against the holiness of God. He's holding on to those and they are nailed to a cross. They are, they are killed and done with when Jesus is killed. And how this shows up in our lives is when you find yourself saying to yourself, or maybe a loved one says to you, forgiven, do you have any idea what I've done? And the Lord God Almighty responds, do you have any idea what I've done? Did that method of death miss some bill that you need to pay still? I want you to have certain hope of your forgiveness of sins because of all that took place and all that I gave you in the context of evidence that your debts were paid. So even today, how about you walk out of this auditorium, shoulders back, head held high. You have a priest that is going to go before the Holy Father and say, he's with me. Amen. And we know that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second claim that people have that say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because they know how important it is, is that people went to the wrong tomb. Oops, wrong address. <laughs> now this one, again, this, this one's a little bit difficult to actually grasp if you understand what took place is because that tomb that Jesus was buried in, it wasn't like, uh, you know, I don't know, Arlington National Cemetery where it's just rows of headstones or, or, or uh, places to bury people. It was like, it was a designated tomb. It belonged to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. It had a Roman seal and a guard on it. I don't know if you've been to any cemeteries, but they don't have guards. So it'd be pretty easy to find the one where Jesus was buried. He's the guy with the soldiers out front. And why did they have soldiers out front? Because Jesus said, you don't, you don't have power to hold me down. Death has no power over me. The love of God sent me here and the love of God will resurrect me in three days. I'm seeing you again. And so to make sure that he stayed where he, they put him, they put a seal and a Roman guard on him. If they went to the wrong tomb, the Jesus haters would go to the right tomb, <laughs> find the body, and they'd have a parade all through Jerusalem. And in that second, the Jesus movement would be dead forever. If there's no resurrection... The claims of Christ are invalid. And any of us that believe and have faith in those claims, we're miserable. Look, again, Paul's arguing this. I'm not. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, like because they went to the wrong tomb, okay, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And more than that, then uh, we, are, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, relying about God. For we have testified about God that he was raised Christ from the dead. And if that's not true, then we're lying. But the claims of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ is true. And so therefore the claims of Christ are true. And those claims are audacious. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says, no one comes to the father, but through me. How dare you say something like that? He says, well, wait, 
I'll prove it. I'll be raised from the dead. He, he showed that claim to be true in his resurrection. It's outrageous to claim that you're the only way to the Father, but it is more outrageous to overcome a crucifixion and death. And that was the whole point. It's for you and me, at least for me. Oh, ye of little faith. When I start to believe there's really one way to have eternal life, I'll say, well, there's this one man that said that, and he's the one that rose from the dead. And there's so much proof to that fact. There's a third way people respond to his resurrection not being true is that the disciples stole the Jesus body. The Jesus body was stolen theory. The, the disciples came in at night and then they took Jesus' body away maybe when the soldiers were sleeping. There's problems with that. One is that it, when we say Roman guard in the, in the New Testament, it's not a guard, it's not one person. It's four soldiers that could hold off a hundred men for an entire day. This is part of the, the Roman legion. It is the most powerful fighting elite team in that part of the world and frankly for almost 500 years. If one of the soldiers, is, if this Roman guard failed their, to do their job, they would be killed. They'd be burned alive. And just in line, <laughs> that's the soldiers. The people that were saying kidnapped to the body of Jesus were a band of fishermen and an accountant. So we got that. And they, they overpowered this elite fighting force? It's not likely. But they were sleeping. If they were sleeping, they'd be killed. So it's unlikely they were sleeping. And just like, so if they were sleeping, you still gotta do that stone thing. And it's gonna take more than 12 to do it, but you're rolling out suburban up a hill. Shh, don't wake anyone up. It's unlikely, I'm just saying it's, it's unlikely. Not is it only unlikely, but in the, in the biography of, of Jesus in Matthew's uh, gospel, he says this is what happened on that morning. It's not quiet. He says, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred and an, angel, and, and an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and he rolled away the stone and sat upon it. I love that. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as a snow. And the guards shook and, for fear of him and they became dead. They became like dead men. <laughs> Look at this show of power. Look at the power that's taking place here. I mean, why does God do all of this to resurrect Jesus? I mean, he could have just like done a, you know, Star Wars Yoda thing, you know, just like move. The, no, no, no. He's going to do this. He's going to severe earthquake, lightning angels, garments of white. <laughs> I love that he's sitting on this stone and these Roman guards and he just goes, what's up? <laughs> boom, down like they're dead. Or I don't know, just boop. I don't know what he said. It doesn't matter, right? They're just... Why? Why would God do it that way? Why would he make it this way? Here's why. In Ephesians chapter 1, it's about power. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know a certain hope, his uncomparably great power for us who believe that the power he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and had seated him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, that's in us now. I want you guys to know that's available to you. 
And you can still have, people still have encounters with the power of the Spirit in their lives to this very day. For billions of people have been addicted and powerless and then they are introduced to Jesus Christ and through that they become powerful. People that are alone and lonely are introduced to the fellowship of Jesus Christ and now they can be alone without being lonely. People are, are bored and like they don't know the purpose in life and they, Christ gets a hold of their soul and they are on an adventure. <laughs> I mean, a power-packed, adrenaline-filled events. People are bitter and they cannot overcome some things against them and they're introduced to this power of this Holy Spirit and they are able to forgive. Billions of people over the centuries have been exposed and enjoy this power. People in this room, I have to, anyone can if they are followers of Christ. The powerful display in the resurrection was to demonstrate that we are able to conquer, enjoy, persevere, thrive, one day at a time, if we surrender our lives to the power of the Spirit. That's what he's trying to show us. The fourth thing has to do with the many witnesses that saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. Let me, let me show you, this, is, this follows that first set of scriptures that we read at the very beginning, that he was, verse four through seven, that he was buried, that he was raised on the th uh, third day according to the scriptures and then appeared to Peter and to the 12. And then after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and the last of all, he appeared to me, Paul. And so Paul's writing here and saying, he, he wrote this within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he's saying, look, I, if, <laughs> it's kind of obvious he's naming names, you know, Peter and some of these other apostles. And he's fundamentally saying, look, if you don't believe me, there's 500 plus people that you can talk to that are still alive today. Legally, we would say this is beyond a shadow of a doubt. This resurrection story is truthful. If we, be, here's the thing, it has consequences. If, if we believe in the resurrection and the resurrection is not true, then any sacrifice, any gift, any, any, any cost to us is folly. Not my words, Paul's. Here's what he said. If I, thought, if, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, and I think he did, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, then I'm living for me. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. If there's no resurrection, I'm going to live like I am a mammal and nothing more. But... The certainty of the resurrection says that there's another way to live. That, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that body was a template for our future resurrection. What we might, might look like in the future. Look what he says back to chapter 15 where he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have died. He's like, he's a first look at what we're going to see later on. And so these last visions of, of Jesus are pictures of our future selves because the last visions that we have of people that we love are quite often the darkest, aren't they? 
when the people that we love and we respect and have honored maybe our whole lives find themselves a victim of some illness that's taking away their vitality and their intelligence and their personality and you're just watching them waste away. That's, that's the way we remember them. Or even our young ones, when they die, they are covered in tubes and their face is, is, is either inflated from various medications or emaciated. And then there's the casket. That's how we end. That's not what this says. This says we get a new body and this body right now, it's just a shock. It's just like Jesus, like Jesus said, it's a seed that falls on the ground and dies, opens up. If he were here in Texas, he'd say this body is like an acorn. It's going to get planted and when it gets resurrected, it's going to look like one of these 200-year-old oak trees out here in our courtyard. And I'm going to make sure that you understand that so you have a certain hope. And I'm going to expose this resurrected body to 500 plus people over 40 days. I want them to all see what a 200-year-old oak tree looks like because all they can see is a bunch of little shattered acorns. And to this day, I'm all across the world on headstones or crosses. And those are certain hopes of a future resurrection when they get a new body. And the last time you saw them, they're not gonna look like that. No, God wouldn't allow that. Tim Keller writes this. When people tell me that they were once believing Christians but now have rejected it all, I often ask them after listening to them for quite some time why they originally believed that Jesus rose from the dead and how they came to decide that now he has not. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historical, verifiable, validations of a promise from a reliable promise giver who understands the frailty of human faith and says, I'm gonna have to run up the score for you guys. So in your moments of doubt, you'll believe. You'll have a certain hope. That cross is a hinge of all human history. No icon has changed more lives than that. I love what Max Licata writes about the cross. He said, that cross in the timeline of human history is a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons sufferers. Its absurdity attracts cynics. Its hope lures those that are searching. History has idolized it and despised it. It's gold-plated it and burned it, worn it as jewelry and trashed it. History has done everything to this cross but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber? Suspended on its beam is the greatest claim in history, a crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth, divine, eternal, a death slayer. Never has timber been regarded so sacred. It is no wonder that Paul called the cross event the core of the gospel. It's the bottom line and it's sobering. If its account is true, it's history's hinge, period. If not, the cross is history's hoax. So what about you? A hinge or a hoax? What does that cross mean? It cannot, it cannot be ignored. If you choose today to let Jesus Christ, that violent death, 
be the payment for your sins and crimes against God so that you might have perfection in him. You inherit his righteousness. You trust in that today. You can receive the power of the spirit, the forgiveness in Christ, and the fellowship of enjoying a relationship with the Father here in this life and in the next for eternity. You just have to ask. Just say, I'm going to move my trust in my own good deeds to placing my trust completely in those acts of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. I would love for you to make that choice today. If you do, I, I would, it'd, be, it would be wonderful if you told someone about that, maybe someone that brought you, someone at the Welcome Center or connect with us online so we can help you learn how to live with this supernatural power of the spirit that was demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus. We have that. To those of you that have trusted Christ, I am here to remind you that it is a certain hope. It's not a sentimental hope. It's not a practical hope. It's a hope that drives us. And here's how Paul ends chapter 15 when he's talking to believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing all of the logical consequences for that. He says this, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said, whoever gives up mother, father, sister, brother, house, acreage, whatever, whatever you, quote, give up, Jesus says, I'll pay back a hundredfold. Never once does Jesus say, sacrifice for me. He always says, invest in my claims to be true. You'll be glad you did. And so what Paul's saying here is stand firm. Stand firm in every act of service to his local church, for example. Whether you're helping park cars or serving children's through adult ministry, whether you're a single parent and you're doing what you've got to do to get your children here, you stand firm. Keep doing that. He says, let nothing move you. Let nothing move you in your commitment to purity in a in a culture that has gone insane. Let nothing move you in your, in your acts of generosity in uncertain financial times. That's what Paul's saying, because the resurrection's true, the claims are true, the evidence is <laughs> scattered far and wide. He says, give yourself fully, give yourself fully. So if you up and sell everything and move to some remote part of the world to tell people about the resurrection of Christ, not just the history, but all that it says about the nature of God and his love and the power and the honor that's received in becoming a Christ follower. He's saying, give yourself fully to that because it's true. Resurrection Sunday is true. Paul said somewhere else, he said, I consider the present sufferings not worthy of comparing to the glory that's afforded to me later in this next life. Resurrection Sunday is about this. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you join me in prayer? Dear God, in your mercy and your love for us, in your knowledge of how weak our faith can be, you demonstrate your love by causing this substitutionary death payment in such a grand and spectacular way that we can keep going back when our emotions are volatile, when the costs seem unbearable, we can go back and say, but it's true. 
and it happened, and I can't back my way out of this, and so therefore I will stand firm. I'm not going to let anything move me. I'm going to give myself fully to the claims of Jesus Christ and the Spirit's call to obedience. Lord, I'd ask that this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, would be a Sunday of confirmation of a certain hope, the, me, the hope in the many promises that you've given, and you're a great promise giver because you're a great promise keeper. Lord, I'd ask that the new followers of you today, they would experience the joy of having your spirit live in their souls and give them the courage to do whatever is next. We praise you this day for all that you've done. Lord, let our lives be an offering back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said...